so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome, listeners, to another segment of our, um, kind of as we navigate through the book of Romans. Uh, before we get into Romans chapter 14, I want to uh, address uh, a couple things in the last couple podcasts that I did. You know, I, I sometimes go back and re-listen to these podcasts because I want to, you know, usually there's a week between doing them, uh, but chapter to chapter, and I sometimes give myself a refresher if I couldn't remember exactly what I talked about. And as I was going through it, I, I kind of, <clears throat> I don't know if I had a conviction or if I just had this this thought that I wanted to make sure that while I I always want to be somebody who advocates for truth, and I don't care necessarily even who it offends. I also want to make sure that I'm doing it in a way that um, is not intentionally offensive um, or maybe even unintentionally offensive um, because I didn't say something in the fullest extent or I didn't say it correctly or whatnot. And so with all that stuff said, this is kind of things that have been going through my mind, and I apologize if, it's, if it seems jumbled, but one of the things I want to say is, is we all have our starting place, Okay. Um, yes, Romans 12 is talking about the marks of true Christianity. That's the aim. That's what we go to, uh, to seek to uphold in our life. And we're all starting at, at different pathways in the sense we all have different upbringings, different views that have to just get purged from us as we uh, are sanctified in the image of Christ. And so I want everybody to understand that some things that I said in Romans chapter 12... Um, when it, specifically when it comes down to um, the concept of self-defense and the concept of justice and the concept of all this stuff, I understand everybody has a starting place. Um, and I want everybody to understand that I'm not saying that if you are, uh, if you believe that you can defend yourself, if you believe in the concept of justice or whatever it might be, that you're not saved or that you're not um, actually a follower of Christ. What I am saying is, is that it is impossible to uphold the essence of the gospel and uphold the essence of justice. That is impossible. And so what I want us to, to glean from that in Romans 12 is to understand that we all have our starting places, but the finish line remains the same. We need to make sure that our aim is the finish. And if we're the same um, at the finish line as what we were when we first started, then something was wrong with our journey. The finish line is, is irrefutable, it's undisputable. We cannot get over the fact of what the gospel is, and that's our aim. That's what we need to be going after. So I didn't want to make anyone feel condemned if they listen to it and they're like, whoa, okay, is this guy saying I'm not saved? I'm not saying that you're not saved. What I am stating is, is that we need a, a better understanding of the gospel in application today in the church and stop condoning things that go against the gospel. And we need to grow into the image of Christ. The other thing I wanted to talk about um, is in Romans 13, I talked about the, um, 
the concept of um, nationalism or patriotism and how it flies in the face of the, uh, the truth behind a heavenly nationalism or a heavenly patriotism. Um, and so, you know, if some of this stuff doesn't make sense, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. If you're a first-time listener, I want to clarify some things on there. Again, I don't want anyone to feel that if, if you have a love for your nation that, that all of a sudden it's like, well, you're an idolatry and you're just a horrible person. I'm not at all saying that. I don't have a problem with somebody who wants to honor their nation. I don't have a problem with somebody who even loves their nation. What I have a problem with is when that love or that honor conflicts with the love that we should have for the heavenly nation of God. And if it's equal to or even greater than, then yes, it would be idolatry. But I don't have a problem. In the same way, I wouldn't have a problem with somebody who loves their wife or loves their family, but if that love is equal to or greater than the love that we have for Christ, his kingdom, and the mission, then it is idolatry. And so I wanted to clarify those two principles to understand that, yes, we all have a sanctifying journey, but I have to reinforce the finish line is the same. Truth is absolute. It is not relative. You don't get to decide what your truth is and then say, I'm going to run my race. No, there is the race that we run. And if you choose to go off on your own and you choose to ignore wise biblical truth, then you're running the chance of being disqualified, as 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 says. So the finish line is the same, and that's the race that we're on. And if we seek to please Christ, and that is our aim, then our finish line should look the same in the end. So with that said... We're going to get in Romans chapter 14 and chapter 12 and 13 where Paul's addressed to the church of this is what it looks like to kind of love God. And Romans 14 is going to go into what it's going to look like to love one another. Now with that, I wanted to preface all of that with this verse right here in 1 John chapter 3 where he says this in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, meaning the brothers. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. By this we know love, the true, biblical, godly love, the love in truth, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. Now, why do I get into that before we even get into Romans 14 is because this is exactly what Romans 14 is predicated on. It's the commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples in John 13, 34 through 35, when he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another by this, the world will know that you belong to me if you have love for one another. The one another's in scripture is not referencing the world. It is referencing the church. And there's no way around that in scripture. It is referencing the church. Galatians 6.10 talks about it. So then as we have our opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. We love the world. That's why we're willing to go teach the truth of the gospel and tell people that they need to repent. That's why we go and serve them even when they don't deserve it. But especially the household of faith. And this is where we're going to get into this. So, Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions or preferences or your, your, um, necessarily even just your belief structure on certain things pertaining to the law. And that'll make sense in just a second, meaning the law of Torah. Okay? And I think that's a very important distinction to make because, yes, there are doctrinal um, opinions that we have in the New Testament that we should stand on. And we should even to this extent have, um, some, some heated discussions if possible, like if, if it needs to be. 
There's some things in there that we need to have possibly heated discussions over that are doctrinal matters within the new covenant. But I don't believe that's what Paul is specifically referencing here. I think what he's referencing is specifically the relationship that a believer has unto the law of Moses. And that will make sense here in a second as we progress whenever he talks about observing a day in honor of the Lord and not eating certain foods in honor of the Lord. Here's what he goes on to say. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, what is he talking about here? Let me, let me define what it means to be weak. Okay? Um, he says, let not the one who is weak in faith welcome him. I'm sorry. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. He's clearly identifying the targeted audience here. It is somebody who is weak in faith, not absent of faith, not somebody who doesn't have faith, not an unbeliever, but a brother who is in the faith who just might have a weak faith. The word is is astheneo, and it means a sick, feeble, or diseased faith. And you're like, is that even possible? Yes, it's possible because it's exactly what the word says. Weak in faith. If I go to a tree and I look at that tree, if it doesn't have any leaves on it, I'm going to say that tree is dead. It's not saying it is dead. It is saying that it is diseased. It is on the verge, possibly, of dying. It is something that is lacking. There's some sort of nutrient or some sort of mineral or some sort of... of, You know, thing that water, whatever it might be, that it needs in order to get rid of that disease and begin to thrive. So he's identifying somebody who is strong in faith, who has a healthy faith, and somebody who is weak in faith or has a diseased, sick, or feeble faith. It is weak. It needs to be strengthened. And so he's setting the the, the stage for how the strong are to um, handle the weak. And here's what he says. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person, I want you to catch this, is very important because I've had many discussions with people who are part of the Hebrew Roots movement about this passage. The weak person, the diseased person, the one who doesn't have the full grasp of the power of what the gospel is, the transformative power of the gospel that has changed the dynamic of how we interact with the law of Moses, that person is weak in faith. He says, don't quarrel over opinions with them. They believe that they have to eat only vegetables. Why Why is that? Why does he specifically bring up the concept of they believe that they, they have to eat vegetables? Well, I'll tell you why. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 12, here's what he talks about. I'm sorry, not Daniel 4. Um, Daniel chapter 1, verse 12. And this is, again, this is how I'm uh, looking at this passage as to why it brings up the concept of vegetables. Because I, I don't know of any other story in Scripture that kind of brings about this concept of how it would relate to us today. In Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So essentially what was happening is, is under the law, if you don't know this, under the law there are deemed things that are unclean and food that is deemed clean. Things in which you were allowed to eat and things which you were not. The unclean food was deemed unclean. You were to stay away from it, not allowed to touch your body. Uh, or touch your lips and be ingested into your body. And then there's the clean food that God, through the law of Moses, said you were allowed to eat. 
Now, there's a spiritual foreshadow to this that I've got too much to go to go into to be able to break this down. Uh, what I want to tell you in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, Peter is given a vision that kind of brings all this into summation. All right. But here's what he talks about. The weak person says, you know what? Though that meat might be offered, I'm not going to eat it because I can't allow something unclean to touch my lips. So I'll just take the vegetables, please. While the person who's strong in faith, who has a healthy faith, who understands what the gospel has done, they'll eat the meat. He goes on, he says this, Let not the one who eats, meaning the strong in faith, despise the one who abstains, meaning the weak in faith. And let not the one who abstains, the weak in faith, pass judgment on the one who eats, the strong in faith. For God has welcomed him. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Is it before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand? The whole concept that he's to get in here is that the cross has purchased something for us. And we're going to go into 1 Timothy 4 in just a little bit. The cross has purchased something for us. And it takes us back to the beginning. I could go into the concept of marriage in Mark, I think it's chapter 10. Um, I think it's chapter 10, Mark 10, or maybe it's Mark 7. Now I don't remember exactly. Now I'm going to have to tell you because I don't want to misquote it. Yeah, in Mark 10, he talks about this concept of divorce. And a lot of times people have this misnomer about divorce because we want to go back to the law or even to the things in which Jesus taught about in Matthew 5 when he was going back to the law to clarify what was written. But in Mark 10, Jesus takes us to a different place. He doesn't go back to what was written in the law. He goes back to when marriage was instituted. And I would encourage you to go read Mark 10. Basically, I think it's the whole premise right there of the whole concept of divorce. Whenever the Pharisees come to him, they say, hey, you know what? Is divorce okay? And Jesus says, what does the law of Moses tell you? He says, Moses let us divorce. He let us write a certificate of divorce. And it was actually justifiable. And Jesus says, yes, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed it. Notice he didn't necessarily say God. He said Moses allowed it. But in the beginning... It was not so. When God originally instituted the marriage covenant, divorce was not part of it. The law of Moses allowed a certificate of divorce to be written for various causes found in Deuteronomy, I think it's 22 and 24, um, in that range right there. It allowed for the certificate of divorce to be written. But in the beginning... Before the law of Moses even came about. In the beginning, when God constituted, he said, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. There is not a man on earth that can justify the concept of divorce. And now in the new covenant, Jesus has brought things back to a proper union with God before sin really entered in. And this is why the law of Moses is bypassed. And the strong in faith understands this. The weak in faith doesn't. And it's the same thing with food. I'm going to read you something that might actually shock you. If you didn't already know this, this, this might be something that's going to shock you. Okay? Because in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, God prepared for this ark to carry um, Noah and those who are allowed entrance into the ark because of his righteousness. Notice it wasn't necessarily their own, but his they're allowed interest into this ark. And this ark has now spared them and brought them from death unto life, if you will. And now that they've entered into this life, here's what God commands them. And I'm just going to start it in verse 2. 
The fear of you and of the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Okay, you want to just read that one again? Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Now that might make a whole lot more sense whenever I go to 1 Timothy because I know that there's a lot of Hebrew Roots people out there right now who still think that we need to live under the law of Moses. And I would argue against that and Paul argues against that in Romans. I would encourage you to go back and listen to all the podcasts if you haven't yet because I've addressed this topic heavily. You don't get to decide which ones you're going to live by and which ones you won't. He didn't just fulfill a portion. He, re- he fulfilled all of it. And as such, when we come into him, it's fulfilled on our behalf. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 4. And I'm kind of taking a little bunny trail, but that's because I need to teach you what the word of God teaches on this matter. So that you can be informed and then make decisions according to the faith that you have between you and God. And that will make sense as we get to the end of Romans 14. So hang with me. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 5, he says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith. Just let that sink in just for a second. In the latter times, there will be people who will depart from the faith. And how are they going to depart from it? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. You notice everything that when God created everything in Eden, the Garden of Eden, he finished it up when he created all the animals. And you know what he said? It is good. It is good. It's not unclean, it's good. So what God has done is He's brought us back to the beginning before the curse of sin was introduced so that we could have dominion over sin as Genesis 4, 6, and 7 talks about where it says sin is crouching at the door, it's desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You can never fully do that until Christ. But now that Christ has come and we've come into Him, we now have dominion over that sin because sin was in the garden, Right? That's where Satan comes about. This is a whole other concept to be even talking about. But the concept is, is that he's bringing it back. He's bypassing the law. He's bypassing all of that stuff. And he's bringing it back to the beginning. This is why the concept of divorce and the teachings of food are both mentioned here. Because God created marriage. And God created the foods. And both of them were good. Man distorted them. And he goes on, he says, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I, I, I don't know how I can't convince you 
If you're listening to this and you're like, no, I still don't eat pork, I don't eat bacon, let me just tell you. Even pork, even pigs, they were created good. And so my point in all of this is that I want us to understand something as we move into this, is that those who are in Christ, who have a conscience that's been freed from their relationship to the law of Moses, and they're being brought back to the beginning to have a right relationship with God, before the curse of sin truly just had its way with mankind. We've now been given through Christ the ability to overcome sin, to live a Christ-like life, His divine power as 2 Peter 1.3 says, has been granted to us so that we might partake of the divine nature of God Almighty. He's given us all things so that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Sin no longer has to have dominion over us since we're no longer under the law, but under grace. Grace, not the unmerited favor, but the power of God to achieve in us what was formerly impossible that the law could never do. Because Hebrews tells us that the law made nothing perfect. Grace has the ability to make us perfect. Not simply to overlook our imperfections, but to actually bring about in us a working of perfection. Man, I wish the church could have a revelation of this today. Because we are blinded to this reality and truth. So I want you to have a proper understanding of what has been accomplished and done through the cross. But that's not the targeted audience. The targeted audience here is people who are weak in faith, who don't understand that. How are we to interact with them? And essentially summarize in one word, Paul says, you love them. You don't argue over the pain. Seek to instruct them in sound doctrine. Seek to um, encourage them and to show them, reveal to them the truth. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You need to teach them the way of the cross and what God has actually given to us and accomplished through Jesus Christ. But don't argue with them over their opinions of them saying, I just don't think that I can eat that. Okay, brother. You don't eat pork? I won't eat pork with you. And we'll get into that in just a second. But I'm setting the stage here for everything that he's about to try to relate to us. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What day is he referencing? I, I would imagine it has to go into, it could be several things. It could be the Sabbath day, in which many people would say that, no, we have to keep that because the law says we have to keep that. I mean, it even goes back into Genesis. You know what the Sabbath day is actually a prophecy of? It's, it's not a, the Sabbath was not, um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Remember what Jesus talks about? When God instituted the Sabbath, it was actually to, to prophesy and foreshadow the gospel. This is why 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 talk about that this is the day of salvation. That six days God did all the work. Everything that was needed to accomplish life and our, our sustaining of that life here on earth in a physical manner was accomplished. And in the seventh day, you get to rest on what God accomplished. In the same way, six days being the number of man, seven days being the number of God. In six days, the Son of Man came and accomplished the work of God. He did everything that was needed to bring about this access unto faith and righteousness. Everything that was needed. He did it. You didn't do anything. God did it. 
And the seventh day, you get to come in and rest in what God accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ. That is why it says there remains a Sabbath rest. Not because man has to keep the Sabbath, but man has to honor the one who is our Sabbath. And that is Jesus Christ. Which is why it says in Matthew 11, Come to me all you weary and heavy laden and you will find what? Rest for your souls. It ain't about your physical body finding rest on a Sabbath day. It was the prophecy of the coming Christ who would give rest for our souls. And he became the Sabbath that was prophesied back in the beginning. I'd love to go more in depth on that one. But the reality is, some people don't understand that. Some people still think they need to observe a day, whether it be a, a, a feast of booths or whether it be a Sabbath day or whatever it be. As Colossians talks about where he says, you observe days and seasons and months and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Because here's the deal. Bearing with the failings of the weak does not mean you don't seek to instruct them. Otherwise, most of scripture would be null and void because that's exactly what Paul did. He tried to bear the failings of the weak and instruct them to be strong. Remember we talked about in Colossians in uh, chapter 1, I think it's 28 through 29, where it says, um, Him we proclaim warning and teaching everyone with all of His wisdom. He says, I was warning and teaching everybody. to. I wanted to present them mature in Christ. So bearing with the failings of the weak does not mean we don't seek to instruct them. It doesn't mean we don't have podcasts to try to lead you into the truth. What it means is, is I don't stop loving you even though you might think differently than me because you're diseased or weak in your faith. I still love you. And I'm not going to quarrel over these things because you're not fully convinced in your own mind. Paul's going to say, here's how instead, here's how you're going to handle it. Just don't eat with them. If they say they don't want to eat pork and you know they have that conviction, then don't eat pork in front of them. Abstain from it yourself. This is what he gets into as we go through this. He says, the one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. They're doing it in honor of Christ. These are Christians. These are brothers. This isn't Jews who are under the law of Judaism. And they don't believe in Christ. These are fellow brothers who believe in Christ. They just have not escaped the bondage of their relationship to the law of Moses because they have not fully been informed yet. They haven't received it yet. So he says they might have this conviction. They still need to honor the Sabbath. He says, you know what? Let them honor the Sabbath. If they're doing it in honor of Christ. If they're doing it because Moses required it has nothing to do with Christ, then I believe it's sin. If they're not eating pork because Moses required of it as some form of righteousness for them and has nothing to do with Christ, I believe it's sin. If they're keeping the Feast of Booths because they think that it has something to do with Moses commanded us to do it, so we need to do it. And it has nothing to do with understanding the fulfillment that Christ has brought about in it, then I believe it's sin. But you know what? If somebody says to me, I'm keeping the Feast of Booths this week, because this is the week that we keep it, and I say, why are you keeping it? And they say, well, because of Christ. Then I'll say, you know what? I'll keep it with you. Let's honor the Lord together in that. I don't have a problem with somebody keeping the Feast of Booths as long as it is the honor of the Lord. I don't have a problem with somebody keeping the Sabbath as long as it is the honor of the Lord. I don't have a problem with somebody refraining from eating certain meats as long as it's in honor of the Lord. Because in 2 Corinthians 3, I think it's verse 11, maybe it's 8, 12, somewhere in that range, it says, um, 
For that which once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. And he's referencing the Ten Commandments. He says it's come to have no glory at all because of the glory of Christ that surpasses it. He goes on, he says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. What does he mean by this? Uh, here's what, what I believe he's trying to, to bring a, a, a summarization of. It's about ownership. For to this end, as he says, for to this end Christ died and lived again. So that he might be the, the, the um, Lord both of the dead and of the living. He says it's all about ownership. And no longer to be owned by the law but to be owned by Christ. He's our Lord. Not the law. And here's what he says. In Galatians chapter 3, listen to what he says here. Um, I'm going to read in 23 through 26. He says, Now before faith came, meaning faith in Christ, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, meaning until Christ would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our schoolmaster, our master, our Lord, until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, meaning faith in Christ, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. What's he saying? He says that we were all held captive under the law. That was our daddy. But once Christ came, he set us free from the captivity of being under the law. And he now has said, I'm your Lord. I'm your master. No longer the law of Moses. The law of Moses was only a school teacher to teach us our depravity and our need for a savior. To show us our utter dependency that was needed for a savior. And when we pledge our life to Christ as Lord... That saving takes place. And once we come into Christ, we are no longer under the law of Moses, which is exactly what Ephesians 2 upholds. I have died to the law so that I might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead. So because of this being true, why do we pass judgment on our brother in such things, things pertaining to the law of Moses? We are supposed to judge one another. 1 Corinthians 5 explicitly says that. It's not those outside the church that you are to judge. It's those inside the church. If somebody bears the name of brother, then you hold them to the standard of living according to Christ. One of the, weak, one of the worst things that's happened in the church today that has made us weak is that we stop doing this. We stop teaching this holy standard and we stop holding one another to that standard. But it cannot be so. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, 
As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us, notice Paul includes himself here, will give an account of himself to God. Now, I find this fascinating. Because here's here's the deal. Paul includes himself, and he says that every single person who confesses the name of Jesus Christ, every single person, not limited to them, the rest of the world will, will stand before him as well under the book of life and see whose name is written in it. But he says even before that, in Revelation 20, it talks about it with the great white throne judgment where it says that every single person will stand before the judgment seat. And they will give an account for what they have done in the body, as 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, whether good or evil. You'll give an account. Don't think that all your past, present, future sins were wiped away, forgiven, and forgotten. You will give an account before the Lord. And I don't know what the punishment's going to be, but there will be a punishment. You will give an account. And interesting that the word here for an account is the word logos. And it's the word that's oftentimes used to denote doctrine um, or knowledge of doctrine or the speech of doctrine. He says essentially this, you will give an account of what your faith allowed you to do and how you walked appropriately to that. If you thought that it was not permissible for you to eat pork, but you went ahead and ate pork, you'll give an account for it. Because your doctrine conflicted with your faith. And I hope that makes sense. Because anyone who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. James 4.12 or 4.17. If you know the right thing to do, but you fail to do it, it's sin. And on the flip side, if you know what you shouldn't do, and you choose to do it anyways... That also is sin. So it's the act, the sin of omission and the sin of commission. Both of them are sin. And you will give an account for it because your doctrine conflicted with your faith. And that will make sense as we keep going. So bear with me on this. Therefore, therefore because um, each person will give an account of their faith before God of how they lived out their faith in pure doctrine. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer in terms of things pertaining to the law. Okay, that's the concept of what he's, he's getting here. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Let me read that one again. But to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul understood that to love your brother is to set aside your preferences, even your liberties, to put them on a cross for the sake of your brother. So Paul says the antidote to all this stuff is to love him. You might have the right to eat bacon, but if you're if you are foolishly eating bacon in front of somebody that you know has a problem with it, that is sin, and you will give an account. Because you did not fulfill the greatest commandment in the new covenant given through Jesus. And that is to love one another as I have loved you. Did Christ lay down his preferences? Did Christ lay down his body? Did Christ lay down the things that he could have done in order to instruct and to love the bride? Absolutely. And he says, I want you to do the same. 1 John 2, 6, if anyone says he abides in him, you ought to walk in the same way which he walked. 
Did he call out sin? Absolutely. Did he rebuke people? Absolutely. But did he love them well with the love of God? Yes, he did. And we're called to do the same. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. Listen to very carefully, you Hebrew roots people. I'm not just trying to, to call you out and, and try to make you guys feel ashamed. I'm just admonishing you into proper doctrine. Because I would not be loving you well if I didn't do it. He says this, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Did, did you catch it? He says, in Christ, nothing's unclean. In Christ, nothing is unclean because he has created everything for you to enjoy with thanksgiving because the word of God through the expression of Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, John 1.1 1, 1 says, has made it clean. It wasn't the Moses made it clean. It was that Jesus made it clean. As I've tried to hear some Hebrew roots say in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5, that it was the word of God, meaning Moses' word, that made, thing clean, that made things clean. Man, don't diminish the person of Jesus Christ by saying Moses has more authority than him. The word of God referenced in 1 Timothy 4 5 is the word of God manifest through the person of Jesus Christ. The word that God brought to us through him. He made it clean. And therefore, those who are in him, it's all clean. Except for the one who doesn't believe. He says, for if your brother is aggrieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Let me just tell you, if you, if you again, if you are going out there and you are just, you're pulling, um, I forget what the guy's name was. Back in the Old Testament, Moses and Aaron were sitting there and this Israelite came and he brought this foreign woman attached on his arm and just kind of trounced her right in front of them, even though they were just given the command that you are not to take any of the foreign women. And he just trounced right in front of them, walks into his tent, and he's about to go have relations with her in the tent. And Phineas, Phineas picks up this spear and he goes in there and he strikes both of them down dead. He says, you will not do that in Israel. Now let me just tell you, if you're doing this kind of stuff of just trouncing right in front of somebody that you know has a conviction and you're eating pork or you're eating pig or whatever it might be that they believe is unclean and you're doing it right in front of them, then you're no longer walking in love. And I, I'm not going to say you need to be struck down dead, but I'm going to say God's going to judge you. First Corinthians 3, 16-17. It says that we are the temple of the living, of the living God. And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, he will destroy you. And you might not think that, that is applicable to you because it's like, wait, wait a second, I'm, I'm, I'm saved. God wouldn't destroy me. Who do you think he's referencing when he says you? You are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. Therefore, if anyone destroys God's temple, he will destroy you. The you never changed. The you is still indicative of a child of God, a person who is in the faith. And if you are going to destroy the work of God, then he'll destroy you. Look at what Jesus says even in Luke 17. And he said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. 
If you're tempting somebody, if you're causing them to stumble in their faith because of what you are doing, then God will destroy you. This is why I wanted to take it seriously about what I said in Romans 12 and 13 and come back and say, hey guys, this is what I'm trying to intend to say. I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. I don't want to cause anyone to have an undue sense of condemnation upon themselves. Because I know that if I do something to destroy God's temple, God will destroy me. It says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Notice what the position is, in the Holy Spirit. And I encourage you to go read 2 Corinthians 3, because the whole concept of that is um, letters carved in stone. Uh, Now, letters, man, now I can't remember it. Let me get to it real quick because I don't want to misquote it. You have two different things that are being referenced here. He says, um, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In verse 6, Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? It's not about the, the, the... Man, I just forgot again. The letters of death carved in stone, however that worded it in 2 Corinthians 3, it's about the Spirit. In the Spirit of God, in the Holy Spirit, that is how you have access through the person of Jesus Christ to righteousness, peace, and joy. Not through your observance of the law of Moses. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding in truth, not absent of it. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Listen very carefully again. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned. Now this is an interesting word here because I know <clears throat> I know that a lot of people look at this concept and somehow they forget this in application to um, Romans 8.1. And I understand that the two words, you have crema and you have crino, but the two words find their, their similarities in exact, almost the exact same definition. He says, whoever eats is condemned. Why is that important? Because Romans 8.1 is misquoted so many times today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we like to say, you cannot come under condemnation if you're in Christ. Let me just tell you that if you look in your, if you have a trustworthy translation and you're looking in the footnote of that, or if you read in the King James Version, you're going to find that there's a continuation to that verse. 
that's upheld in verse 3 and 4, the same premise, and actually in the rest of chapter 8. Here's what it actually says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fall under condemnation. But if you choose to walk according to the flesh, then yes, you most certainly can come under condemnation, even if you're in Christ. And this is one of those that proves it. If you choose to just go eat bacon in front of somebody because you're like, I can eat bacon, I'm free in Christ. I have the liberty to do it. Well, then you're causing a brother to stumble and you will be in sin and you're putting yourself under condemnation. That's just what the Word teaches. Forget your traditional aspect. Forget what you've thought you've always known in doctrine. This is simply what the Word of God is teaching. And we've got to begin accepting what the Word of God says more than what the Word of man says. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There's no way of getting around it. I would encourage you guys to go read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 23 through 33 in this one. I'm not going to go read it for you guys. But just know that if you go and read that, I think you're going to find the heartbeat behind what Paul's trying to talk about. Our job is to love the brethren at the expense of ourselves. That's what, what I said in the very beginning, 1 John chapter 3, 14 and 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. So if you are not laying your life down for the brethren, then you are not loving as Christ loved us. And I want to tell you, you're in sin. Because he's our example. He's the race that we need to be running with endurance. Looking to the one who set the bar of the faith at the highest example, and he says, now I want you to run to attain it. So this is, chapter 14 starts in, with how are we to love one another? 12 and 13, how are we to exemplify the image of Christ and love God? 14 begins the journey of how do we love one another? And Paul says, lay down your liberties. Lay down your preferences. And love at the expense of yourself. This is why verse, 5, verse 1 of chapter 15 says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. How are you loving the church today? Are you arrogant and proud thinking that you have um, an entitled privilege to not have to keep the Sabbath? To not have to eat pork? Well, let me just tell you, you do have that privilege and that liberty. But love lays down those liberties for the sake of another. Do you know that it says that Jesus had the liberty to call legion of angels to defend him? But then how would the, the plan of God be fulfilled in him? How would he love the world if he chose to save himself? Something to think about. As you go through your day of choosing to lay down the things that you might have a liberty in in order to serve others well. Y'all be blessed.